Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Everybody online, hope this experience is better. We've got all new audio-visual gear up and running. The online experience looks phenomenal, sounds great. We did a lot of testing on it yesterday, and it is awesome. So if you don't have the link to our Vimeo or YouTube channel or the live feed, please get that from one of us and pass it to friends and family so they can go through this depth of the Word of God with us. So this morning... We are opening up, we've gone through the first five chapters of Revelation, and we finished the throne room, chapter five, last Sunday for Resurrection Sunday, and we're going to start off, we're getting into chapter six, the loosing of the seals that Jesus came forward, he took the scroll, and he's starting to loose the seals thereof, and it triggers the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, and I got, I got some feedback last week that we went through kind of the first 69 weeks of Daniel really quick as a part of Resurrection Sunday and because it's tied to Passover and to Jesus riding it on the donkey. So we're going to start just by going back through a few of those slides that go up through the first 69 weeks. And then we're going to look at the 70th week of Daniel in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. That's where we start. That's the trigger point for the final seven-year period of all human history before Jesus comes back. So to back up a little bit before we get into this, I want to make sure this is the key to understanding all end-time prophecy is the 70 weeks of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9. And Jesus points us to that in Matthew 24 when he references the abomination of desolation as spoken of by Daniel the prophet. He links everything of his return to this prophecy from Daniel 9. It is literally the key to understand basically every prophetic event in the Bible is right here in Daniel chapter 9. So Daniel, he was this Jewish captive. He probably was about 19 years old when he was taken captive off to Babylon. And he's, he, Babylon comes, they conquer Jerusalem. There's actually three sieges of Jerusalem and he gets carried away, he and Ezekiel and some other of the great old men of the Bible, they get carried away to Babylon. Daniel was of some type of royal descent, probably from Zerubbabel, and it's referenced in Daniel chapter 1, verse 3. But God told his people, okay, after you, you sow the land six years, let it rest the seventh. And they didn't do that for 490 years. They didn't obey God's word, and as a result... They get taken into captivity for 70 years. Basically, God says, okay, you owe me 70 because you didn't listen to my word. Okay, and that same application is really to us today in terms of how much more do we know of God's word that we are to listen to, but yet we don't. And what we're going to see is 
when Jesus rides in on that donkey that like we talked about last week, he declares corporate blindness over Israel for not listening, for not knowing the time of his arrival. They didn't listen, and so he declares corporate blindness on them in Luke. Okay, so this is actually, it's prophesied in Leviticus, and I will scatter you among the heathen and will draw a sword after you, and your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Then shall the land enjoy her Sabbath as long as it lieth desolate, and ye be in your enemy's land. Even then shall the land rest and enjoy her Sabbath as long as it lieth desolate. It shall rest because it did not rest in your Sabbath when ye dwelt upon it. And in Second Chronicles 36, it says again, God says, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbath. So God is taking his word very serious. And as a result, they go into captivity for 70 years. So Daniel is in captivity. The 70 years are almost up. Now, keep in mind, the 70 years of captivity are totally separate from the 70 weeks of Daniel. Okay, I realize it can be a little confusing because they're both 70, but the captivity is totally different. It's, it's a time of which Daniel receives the prophecy of the 70 weeks. Okay, they are not co-determinists. They don't go together necessarily. But Daniel in chapter 9 is reading his Bible. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Okay, so Daniel realizes he's reading Jeremiah 25 and 29, and he realizes we were going to go into captivity for 70 years. And about this point, the time is almost up. And so he realizes that prophecy has almost been fulfilled. So he's reading his Bible, the book of Jeremiah. They were contemporaries. Jeremiah was likely an old man when Daniel was a young man. But when Jeremiah wrote these prophecies in chapter 25 and 29, he was likely an old man. Daniel, again, remember, he was about 19 when he got taken into captivity. So in Jeremiah 25, it says, And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And then chapter 29, For thus saith the Lord that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. So Daniel realizes, okay, when the 70 years are up, we're going home. So get excited. And so what does he do? He goes to prayer. He sets his face towards God. He's fasting. He's praying earnestly. In verses 3 through 19 of, of Daniel 9, that's his prayer. And the intensity of Daniel's prayer picks up around verse 19, and he's going and going, and the verbs and the intensity are increasing, and then Gabriel steps forward. So we've got two main archangels in the Bible that always deliver a message for Jesus. One is Gabriel. He always delivers a message about the arrival of the Messiah. Remember, Gabriel's the one that spoke to Mary when she was pregnant. Gabriel's the one that gives Daniel the key to the arrival of the Messiah. Okay, Michael is the archangel who fights on behalf of Jesus' people, on behalf of Israel. He always shows up as a warrior for Israel. In Daniel chapter 12, when it speaks of the final seven-year period, it says, at that time, Michael, Michael will stand up, the prince of your people, and fight for you. And he's going to go to war 
on behalf of Israel during that seven-year time period. So Daniel gets interrupted by Gabriel. He's praying, he's fasting. In verses 20 through 27, he gets this prophecy that 69 of these 70 weeks have been fulfilled and we're, we are unlocking and going into the 70th week, the final seven-year period of his prophecy from the book of Daniel. So it starts off in verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. So this is the scope of the entire prophecy. Okay, 70 weeks are determined upon who? Thy people and upon thy holy city. So the word here, 70 weeks, is Shabuya. And again, in the Jewish culture, they've got a week of days. That's where we get seven days a week. It came from the Jewish culture, is established there. They have a week of months. They have a seven-year or seven-month period. And then they have a seven-year period, a week of years. So this is a week of years. 70 weeks, Shabuya literally means 70 seven-year time periods, okay? So there's, multiply that, it's 490 years total is what Gabriel is giving Daniel. So who are the 70 weeks of years focused on? Gabriel tells him, thy people and thy holy city. So Daniel's a Jew. He's a Jewish captive. He is from Jerusalem. So the holy city all through the Bible is Jerusalem. This is a prophecy about the Jewish people and Jerusalem. It has nothing to do with New York City, with Paris, with London, with anything else. It is the Jewish people and the Jewish city, Jerusalem. So when you realize the problem that a lot of us have with eschatology, the study of end times, is we don't separate out the difference between the Jews and the church. God always deals with them independent of one another. Okay, the Jewish people, when Jesus declared corporate blindness on them and he gets crucified on Passover and he rises again and the church is formed, he, he no longer deals with the planet Earth through Israel like he did for the first 4,000 years of human history from Adam to when he was crucified. He All through the Old Testament, he's dealing with Earth through Israel. He tells him when he's showing up, he's the Messiah. He's a Jewish king. He's coming to be killed. We're going to find out in a second. And once he gets, once they reject him, he then creates a new relationship that is us, the church. And he deals with the whole planet Earth through the church until the church is removed. Okay, and remember, think about this too. When Jesus was in the upper room, remember, I must leave so I can send the comforter. But when I leave, I will send the comforter, meaning the Holy Spirit. Well, in order for Jesus to come back, he's got to remove the Holy Spirit, which is us, the church, the indwelling body. And so those are even code independent of one another. Okay, the Holy Spirit is sent when he leaves. The Holy Spirit is returned back to heaven, us, in the carrying vessels of the Holy Spirit, so Jesus can come back. So this whole prophecy, the reason why people kind of get wrapped up around it is they try to make things fit the church. And they just don't. God, those are two independent relationships. Nowhere in the Bible does the church replace Israel. It's always 
it's always unconditional promises to Israel, and the church is a different relationship. So the 70 weeks are focused on thy people and thy holy city. Okay, so what's the purpose of this total 490-year period? Okay, look at what he says. To finish the transgression, Isaiah 53, 5. Okay, when Jesus dies on the cross. To make an end of sins, that obviously has not happened yet. Okay, to make reconciliation for iniquity, Yes, that did happen. Jesus died on the cross. To bring in everlasting righteousness, that obviously has not happened yet. To seal up the vision and prophecy, the end of Daniel chapter 12, God tells Daniel, and he said, go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Okay, so the fact that we have understanding from the Holy Spirit of the entire book of Daniel now tells you that we are almost at the end of it all because it's sealed up until the time of the end. People did not understand this prophecy. The Holy Spirit did not anoint people to understand this until very in recent history. It was not, it was something that was, there's a lot of mystery around it, frankly. Okay, in verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And so Gabriel's telling him from the going forth to build something, to rebuild the wall and the street until Jesus shows up will be seven plus 62, or in other words, 69 weeks of years, 69 seven-year periods that we know from looking back now were contiguous. It was 69 straight seven-year periods, 483 years total, from the commandment from Artaxerxes and Nehemiah to Jesus riding in on the donkey. And that's, remember, Ezra goes back, he gets the petition from Cyrus the king of Persia to rebuild the temple. So Ezra's all about rebuilding the temple, but they can't get far, they're getting attacked. And Nehemiah has this great burden because his people are being unproductive since the wall is broken down. And we're going to talk about how this wall relates to New City Church here in a little bit in, the, in this presentation. But Nehemiah gets a decree from Artaxerxes to go and rebuild that wall. Go help your people. Go back. Okay, so then the next verse, verse 26. And after three score and two weeks. Okay, in other words, if there's seven and then three score and two, Messiah is killed after that point. So after three score and two weeks, in other words, after the seven plus 62, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Okay, and the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Okay, this is a title of the, what we generically call the Antichrist. Okay, it's a, it's a terrible label because the Bible never calls him this, but the final world dictator is we generically in the church call him the Antichrist. One of his titles in the Old Testament is the prince that shall come. Okay, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with the flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. So after the 69 weeks, the Messiah shall be cut off. The word in the Hebrew is karat. It literally means to be executed, killed, or to cut a covenant. And indeed, that because of his death, we do have a covenant with him. The covenant, it's an, it's an everlasting, 
irrevocable covenant with the Messiah. So his death established that. And it's amazing. In the Old Testament, God tells the Jewish people exactly when the Messiah is going to show up and that he must be killed after he shows up. So we know that he's going to show up after these 69 weeks of years, but then after that point, at some point, he has to be killed. Okay, so we are living in that little gap of time right there where he was killed and before the 70th week starts. Okay, the, the next verse. And he, okay, the he here refers back to the Antichrist. I'm just going to use that title because everyone knows it, okay? The he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Okay, so get the picture. You have from the decree of Nehemiah Artaxerxes to Jesus showing up with 69 seven-year periods or 483 years. Then Jesus, the Messiah, must be killed, and then there's a gap of time and but until the he shows up and confirms a covenant with the many or the Jewish people for one week, one final seven-year period. So of the scope of this whole thing, 490 years of Jewish history to, until Jesus returns to rule and reign on earth, 483 of those have passed. We're living in that gap where Jesus was killed, the church is formed, and then once the church is removed, the Antichrist shows up to confirm the covenant for that final, the final start of the, of the last seven-year period, the tribulation as we call it. So the word confirm here is gabar, and it literally means to make strong, strengthen, or to act proudly toward God. And this was fascinating to me because all through the Bible, one of the characteristics of the Antichrist is that he's mouthy. And that he's got a big mouth. He, he constantly is running his mouth, blaspheming God. You see that in Zechariah. You see that in Joel. You see that all over the Bible. He's blaspheming our Lord. So it's just interesting that even in the, in the root of that Hebrew word, that characteristic is entailed in that. Okay, in the midst of the week, and in the midst of the week, so... You get this final seven-year period, and the word midst here is um, hesiah, which means half or middle. Okay, so you have a final seven-year period. Halfway through it, what does he do? In the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. Okay, and for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So in the midpoint of this final seven-year period, the Antichrist causes sacrifices and oblations in the temple to cease. This is one of three hints in the Bible that a temple must be standing in that final seven-year period. There must be a temple standing. Now, what we don't know is when does that temple get built? Does it get built after the rapture, but before the start of that period? Does it get built in the beginning of the seven-year period. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly when it gets built. All we know is that it must be standing during the seven-year tribulation. Okay, and we know this also from 2 Thessalonians 2. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, speaking of the tribulation, except there come a falling away first or a departure 
or a rapture or the Holy Spirit being taken out of the way. And that man of sin, that's the Antichrist, that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. You've got two titles of this guy right here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. See, at the midpoint of the tribulation, he walks into the Holy of Holies, and he declares himself to be God. He exalts himself above all that is called God. So every religion on earth that claims to worship a God, okay, he exalts himself above it all, and it ushers in this one-world religion. Okay, this is, a, this is where we get that, 2 Thessalonians 2. So he goes in, declares himself to be God. He causes the sacrifice to stop. And then it's from that point, the back half, the final three and a half years of the tribulation is what Jesus labels as the great tribulation in Matthew 24. He labels that back half as the great tribulation because it's kind of the proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back, right? There's lots of bad stuff happening, but the ultimate blasphemous thing someone could do on earth is to walk into the Holy of Holies, into the sanctuary of our God, the Most High, and declare that he is God, not the real king. So it's, a, it's, a, it's the moment that breaks the back, so to speak. So we know a temple has to be standing. And if you've never looked into this, look into the Temple Institute in Israel. So there's an institute called the Temple Institute They've been preparing to build the next temple for years. Okay, they have, actually, they've got the building plans, the architectural plans. They have identified through all of the DNA research that we have now with, oh, the, the things you can send in and do a swab and figure out where you're from, right, the genealogy background and all of that. They've actually identified the descendants of Levi through tracing DNA. So they've collected these young men, to be Levitical priests, okay, and, they, and they've trained them in all the ways of the Old Testament, all the sacrifices, all of the offerings, all of the rituals, everything they did, okay, they've been doing that for years, so they've collected these folks, and they've recreated all the garb, they've recreated the, the outfit for the high priest, the ephod that he would wear to go into the Holy of Holies, all of the temple artifacts have been reconstructed, the menorah, the, the table of showbread, all the things they need to go into the temple. And all they're waiting for is the okay to rebuild. And they think once they get that okay, it'll take them about three to four months to start building and have the temple reconstructed. And this is a big deal in Israel. If you're not familiar with the Jewish culture, this is a huge deal. To them, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins to them. And so they have been clamoring since 70 AD for a new temple. And they're going to get one. And it's going to be during this final seven-year period before, well, during the time that we are gone as the church in the rapture. And so they, they are just waiting for someone to step in and say, okay, go right ahead. So I... I'm hoping this link works down here. I wanted to show you guys. It's about a two and a half minute. Okay. It's, well, 
there's a link here. So we'll, we'll post it on our website or something. There's a commercial from the Temple Institute where it shows an old man reading his Bible. He's sitting in Jerusalem. He's clamoring for a temple, okay? And these kids are playing, and the whole commercial shows the temple being rebuilt in the middle of Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. And the kids come over and get him and bring him to the wall so he can look out at the old city and see it. And the, and the whole advertisement is, this is the generation that will rebuild the temple. And they're starting. They're, they are moving as quickly as they can. It's a neat commercial just to show you how serious they are about it. I don't know if it's going to work or not. But in any case, we can keep moving on. But check it out. Look on YouTube. Just look up the Temple Institute. And you can see they, they are trying to find a red heifer. So according to numbers, you need a red heifer to sacrifice and its ashes to dedicate the next temple. And they are so close to getting one. For the first time in about 15, 1,600 years, they've had two of them born. And the only problem is they weren't completely kosher because they had one gray hair. That's how close they are. Okay, so they're just waiting for the one to be born that has no gray hair, that's totally red. Okay, the 70 weeks of years. So remember what Jesus said in Matthew 18. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And it's just so interesting. Jesus is linking these 70 weeks of years to forgiving Israel. Okay, because Israel rejected their Messiah when he shows up on the donkey and he declares corporate blindness on them in Luke. Okay, and then we know from Romans eleven twenty five that that blindness is on Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And that is a term for the church, the fullness of the Gentiles. That's us, the church. Once the church is complete, we go home and the blindness starts to fall off of Israel. Another thing to keep in mind, the rabbis are looking, they, they are saying right now that they are talking to the Messiah. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. They're coming out and saying this, but for the first time, it, certainly in our lifetimes, they're declaring that the Messiah is here and we are in conversations with him. Now, we know that this is the false Messiah, if they really are talking to someone, Secondly, the fact that they are, they are recognizing that this man is about to show up tells you how close we are to it all. They also, the, some of the most venerated rabbis in Jewish history have very recently declared that Jesus was the Messiah. And they have millions of followers, okay? And so when they are declaring this, you're starting to see that blindness lift, which is what Romans 11.25 all talks about. Blindness and powers come to the Gentiles until, okay, when that's lifting, you know that we're close to the church being complete. Okay, so in Daniel 9.25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Jesus, our prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks or 69 weeks of years. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. I just had that verse there again. So just to remind you guys of how long until Jesus shows up. 
And in Nehemiah chapter 2, we get this decree from Artaxerxes, okay, for the wall to go be rebuilt. Now, it wasn't until 1894, really, that this prophecy was, for the most part, locked up. And it was Sir Robert Anderson that discovered, unlocked the, the 70 weeks of Daniel in such a way that we could all understand it today. And the way he recognized it was that God always deals in 360-day years in the Bible, always. And that final seven-year period that we're getting into now is the most documented time in the entire Bible. It's three and a half years, two, two halves of three and a half years each, 1,260 days, 42 months. Okay, God calls it by a lot of things in the Bible, and it's the most documented period of time. And so when Sir Robert Anderson recognized the 360-day year that God declares everything by, he wrote a whole book about it in 1894 called The Coming Prince. I think it's still in print today, but grab a copy. It's, it's long, but he goes through all these calculations and how it's when you take into account the leap years and the solar years and the Gregorian calendar, all of that, how it lines up perfectly when Jesus showed up. So we know from history, Artaxerxes made this decree on March 14th, 445 BC. And when you fast forward, I'm sorry, the format's off a little bit, but when you fast forward and you put all the math together of this 173,880 days, okay, you've got 69 seven-year periods times 360 days each, you get a total of 173,880 days. And when you go from 445 BC to 32 AD, you get 173,740 days. Then you go from March 14th to April 6th, you get another 24 days, and then you account for leap years, and you get the 116 extra days, so you get a total of 173,880 days to the day when Jesus rode in on that donkey on the ascent to allow himself to be worshiped as king. And so this is amazing. And what Jesus is pointing us to is to unlock all of the prophecies moving forward, you've got to understand this in Matthew 24. That's why he points to it. And it's vital for us as we move forward. Now, what's interesting is God always seems to deal with Israel in 490-year periods, okay? From Abraham to the Exodus. Remember, Abraham's the first Jew. So from Abraham to the Exodus, you get the promise in chapter 12, verse 4, which is 75 years, to Galatians 3.17. We know to the Exodus, it was about 430 years later. So you get a total of 505 years, but you subtract out the time period when Israel was not in favor with God out of that little period. It was when Abraham tried to go it his own way, and he had Ishmael. Remember, instead of waiting for the promised son that was Isaac, and that was 15 years in Genesis 16 and 21. So you minus those 15 years, you get 490 years, okay? Then you go to the next part, from the Exodus to the temple. Okay, it begun in 1 Kings 6 for 594 years, is completed seven years later, so you get 601 years, but then you have that period of the judges where they were in servitude to the judges. Mesopotamia, the Moabites, the Canaanites, the Midianites, the Ammonites, and the Philistines, and you add all of those time periods up, it's 111 years. So you subtract out when they were out of favor, and you get, once again, 490 years. 
that God's dealing with them. Okay, then from the temple to this decree that we just looked at, the decree of Artaxerxes in 1 Kings 8, you get 1,005 B.C. to 445 B.C., you get 560 years. But they were in Babylon for 70 years. In captivity, they were in timeout. So you, you get once again 490 years. Okay? And then finally, from the Artaxerxes to the second coming of Jesus, what we just looked at, you get Artaxerxes to the first advent of Jesus. You get the 483 years. And then there's this time period in between, the church, where Israel is set aside. And then the 70th week of Daniel, that final seven-year period, once again, you get 490 years. So God always seems to have this pattern of dealing with Israel in 490-year periods. So we are entering the final seven-year period of human history before Jesus returns. And there's more written about this final period than any other time in all of history in the Bible. This is the most documented period of time in the entire Bible, is this final seven-year period. And what I challenge you to do is to go read the Old Testament and find it out for yourself. Find out that this there is more written by our king about this time period than even when Jesus was on earth in the Gospels. Okay, because it's the culmination of all things for him to come back and to rule and to reign. And so it's known by many titles in the Bible. It's the time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah. That's a hint. Who is it for? Jacob, Israel. It's not the time of the United States trouble. It's not the time of trouble for Europe. It's not the time of trouble for China or Egypt or now certainly all of those nations will be in turbulent times during this time period, but the focus of it is on Israel. It's the day of the Lord, the 70th week of Daniel, the day of the Lord's vengeance. And even in the Old Testament, a lot of times it's just called that day. So when you're reading your Bible and you see that day, just think for a minute, is this a characteristic that fits the final seven-year period? Okay, Jesus defines the back half of it as the great tribulation. In Matthew 24, verses 15 through 21, he talks about, for then shall be great tribulation. And it's all about, look what he says, when ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. It's amazing to me how many people try to discredit Daniel as the author of the book of Daniel. <laughs> and they come up with all these theories and things, but Jesus tells you who wrote it. You don't need to do any research. The Holy Spirit wrote it through Daniel. He tells you that. And when you see it, now, how will you see the abomination of desolation? Okay, it's in Judea. It's in the temple. It's three layers inside the temple in the Holy of Holies. But yet the world is going to see this event because, well, all of you have one in your pocket right now, smartphones, right? Any major news event, imagine the world dictator taking power and declaring that he is God. He is Messiah. And he's going to walk into the temple. It's going to be a major, major political event on the global stage. But Jesus is telling his Jewish disciples, when you see that happen, you get out of Jerusalem, you flee Judea, you run, you go to the mountains, don't even go back and get clothes off your rooftop. Just go, because it's going to be so bad. 
so, so bad. Okay, in Daniel 9.25, and for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. And what he's talking about is, it's only happened one other time in all of history, the abomination of desolation. It happens when somebody else goes into the Holy of Holies and declares himself to be king. That's what he's talking about, and that's what Jesus is linking it to. Okay, the 70th week, like I said, it's known by a lot of titles in the Old Testament. The day of the Lord. In Isaiah 2, for the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty. Okay, if you're in Christ, you're not in this category. Right now, if you are in the church, you're not in this category. And upon everyone that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. Isaiah 13, howl ye for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. In Isaiah 13, behold, the day of the Lord cometh cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. See, before Jesus can come back, a lot of things have to happen. He cannot dwell with sin. He told the children of Israel, I'm taking you out of Egypt because I can't dwell with you there. It's the same reason, number one, he's going to bring us home so we can dwell with him. Number two, for him to step foot back on earth, he already died for sin, so he can't be in its presence anymore. He's got to purge the earth. The ones that will not accept him have got to be taken out of the way so he can show up and set up his kingdom. In Jeremiah 46, for this is the day of the Lord of hosts, a day of vengeance. Remember, we linked that last time to Isaiah 61 versus Luke when he's in the temple and he picks up the book of Isaiah. It's the day of vengeance of our God, that he may avenge him of his adversaries, and the sword shall devour, and it shall be satit and made drunk with their blood. For the Lord of God, the Lord God of hosts hath a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. And when we get to Revelation 17 and 18, we're going to look about what is the sacrifice on the river Euphrates. It's going to be Babylon, rebuilt Babylon. Ezekiel 13, ye have not gone up into the gaps, neither made up the hedge for the house of Israel to stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. And later in that book, for the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near, a cloudy day. It shall be the time of the heathen. And so you've got now, what I'm not doing is giving you, I'm just showing you all these references in the Old Testament to the day of the Lord. Go back and read them and look at the characteristics of that day. It's dark. It's gloomy. He's going to come and fight for his people. The sun will be darkened. The moon won't give her light anymore. And on and on and on. In Joel, alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion on sound and alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. And the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executeth his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? It sounds awful, and it's going to be. But what you're missing, too, and as we study the book of Revelation, the whole book is about redemption. There's likely more people saved during this time period than any other time period on planet Earth is during this time. There is going to be great revival because people will recognize, wow, I missed it. And there's going to be these angels flying around declaring the Lamb, declaring the Messiah, and they're going to get a chance. It's going to be a hard way to get to Jesus, but they're going to get a chance. 
Okay, Joel 2, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. Okay, you see a lot of things about the blood moons. This is in the tribulation. Okay, so don't be nervous if there's a blood moon coming up. We're, we're still here. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Okay, so you get these in Amos. Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. See, this is another characteristic. The world wants to have a world without the church. Okay, and they're going to get it. They desire the day of the Lord in Amos 5. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. How many churches are still shut down around the world? Uh, You're seeing pastors get arrested in Canada for holding church service. You're seeing pastors in California get arrested or bend and say, yeah, we're still going to stay shut down. In New York, it's happening. They're not allowing. You should see some of the rules and regulations. Okay, you can go to church, but you can't sing certain songs. You can go, but all of you have to be out in the parking lot and you can watch on your phones or something. It's unbelievable. And the Lord is going to give the world exactly what they want. The world wants a world without the church. Fine. You're going to get it and you're not going to like it because I'm going to bring them home and there will be a time of trouble that the world has never seen before because the Holy Spirit is taken home and there, you have no idea what the Holy Spirit is restraining right now. The amount of evil and darkness and spiritual wickedness and attack from Satan himself that the world, the Holy Spirit is restraining, it will be the darkest time in human history without the comforter here. The mighty power of the Holy Spirit, the one that pushed the waters back across the Red Sea and they brought to cross on dry land. That was not just an east wind. That was the breath of God, the Holy Spirit that met them there. In Obadiah, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. Notice that. It's not upon us. It's not upon the church. It's not upon the righteous. It's upon all the heathen. In Zephaniah, hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord hath prepared a sacrifice. He hath bid his guests. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near. And hasteth greatly, even the voice of the day of the Lord. The mighty man shall cry there bitterly. And then in Zephaniah again, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. The whole transhumanism movement right now is about how, if I have all the money in the world, I can buy anything I want except for the one thing I cannot buy, which is immortality. And if they can, they're trying to find a way to buy that instead of just being accountable to the one that created them who gives it freely. That is, that's the problem with that whole movement. And they're trying to merge man and machine. You see all kinds of things on the news if you pay attention to this stuff where you hear about billionaires and people trying to implant their consciousness in somebody else or in some robot or AI or something That whole movement is satanic, and it's not of the Lord. The Lord alone gives you immortality, but neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them in that day. Okay, for he shall make even a speedy riddance 
of all of them that dwell in the land. He's got to purge it out. Okay, Zephaniah 2, before the decree bring forth, before the day pass as the chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you, before the, do- the day of the Lord's anger. Zephaniah 2, 3, seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. This is one of the Old Testament allusions to the rapture. Seek him, seek him humbly and with meekness, and you shall be hid, not preserved through. Okay, notice the difference. It's technical, but it's true, and God means exactly what he says. Not that you'll be preserved and kept safe through it. Don't go prep, don't prepare a bunker, don't stock up on food. No, no, no. What God's saying is you'll be hid from it. You're going to be taken to a place that he's been preparing for you in John 14. Okay, Zechariah 14, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. And then in Malachi, this is the last reference in the Old Testament to this, the day of the Lord. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. We're going to look at why is he sending Elijah. That's when we get to Revelation 11. We're going to see that unfold in the two witnesses. But if you know any historical Jewish families that are really orthodox and deliberate in what they do, they save a chair at their table in Passover every year in case Elijah knocks on the door because they're expecting him in Malachi. Remember what Jesus told them? He said, had you accepted me, I I would have sent you Elijah and not John the Baptist. Okay, he sent John the Baptist as a forerunner because he knew they would not accept him. Had the Jews accepted him, the first time he showed up, it would have been Elijah, and he would have ushered in the kingdom. But he didn't. They didn't. They rejected him, and as a result, we get the church age. So in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, Jesus gives us this list of signs that will accompany his return to earth to rule and to reign. And they line up with Revelation 6, and the grouping of signs are the same in both chapters, but they're not the same discussion, okay? They're not the same discussion. Jesus begins both of the discussions with the same command to not be deceived. That's in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. Okay, so first the discussions are in different locations and times. In Matthew 24, and as he sat upon the Mount of Olives. In Luke 21, towards the end, and in the daytime, he was teaching in the temple. See, a lot of people read those two chapters and they think that they're the same discourse, and they're not. But what they do, if you, to Ryan's point to open this, if you rightly divide the word of truth, then you'll be able to see this difference. Okay, so there's a different emphasis by Jesus in these two accounts. I'm sorry, the slide's kind of cut off at the bottom, but these are the beginning of sorrows. Literally, in Greek, it means the birth pangs. And in Luke, it's written to the Gentile church. And Jesus says, but before all of these, and then he tells you to look up for your redemption draws nigh. In Matthew, it's written to the Jews, and he tells them what to do after all of these things. So you have this grouping of signs, and this is what we're getting into now in chapter 6 in Revelation. You've got false Christs, wars, famines, pestilences, earthquakes, the rapture, and the last one that is cut off down there is the abomination of desolation. So you have these The false Christ in chapter 6 is the white horse, the Antichrist riding forward. You have the wars, which is the red horse. 
You have the famines, which is the black horse. You have the pestilences, which is the green horse. Then remember, I'm sure you've all heard the verse, right? There will be earthquakes in diverse places. Okay, Jesus is talking about that. In Matthew, he says, after all of these signs happen, do this. And he gives all these instructions to the Jewish people on how to survive that seven-year period. Okay, in Luke, he tells us, the church, before all of these happen, look up for your redemption draws nigh. Okay, do you see the difference? Same signs. One is to the church. Before any of this happens, look up, you're coming home. Okay, with Matthew, it's after these, this is how you will survive if you're a Jewish believer during that seven-year period. So the start of the 70th week, Revelation 6, verse 1, and I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see, in the next verse, and I saw and behold a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow and a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. This is the trigger point to start the 70th week of Daniel. Remember we talked about, and he shall affirm a covenant or confirm a covenant, make a covenant, strengthen a covenant. Okay, this is what happens. This is a false Messiah. Everything Satan does is a counterfeit. Everything. So to counterfeit Jesus, he has to bring forward a false Messiah, bringing false peace riding on a false white horse because the true king shows up on a white horse in Revelation 19 when we are with him. Okay, so this is a counterfeit, and it's a false peace. Okay, he comes forward, look on verse 2, and he that sat on him had a bow. This bow is the same Greek word in, the, in Genesis that God sets a rainbow in the, in the heavens for Noah, after the flood of Noah, it's a covenant of peace that I'll never again destroy the world with water. Okay, it's a false peace. He's coming forward with a false covenant. This is that covenant that in Daniel 9, he says he will strengthen or make stronger. It actually implies that it's an existing covenant, some kind of existing agreement that he's enforcing or strengthening or making stronger, this covenant. It could be a peace covenant. It could be a deal for land. It could be a deal to let them start their sacrifices again. We're not sure, but whatever it is, it's in place, and he is making it stronger. So this is the coming forth of the counterfeit Messiah, the final world dictator, the son of perdition, the man of sin, the lawless one, the beast, as we'll see with the whole mark of the beast. I'm sure you're all familiar with that. The one the Jewish people think they are in dialogue with right now. This is him coming forward after Jesus takes the scroll. So the start of the 70th week in Zechariah 14, then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations when, as when he fought in the day of battle. So when did the Lord fight in a day of battle? You know, this, is, this has always been fascinating to me because in Numbers 21, Wherefore, it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, what he did in the Red Sea and in the brooks of Arnon. And there's a lot of wars that our king has fought that we don't have cataloged in the Bible. A lot of them. But he's going to go forward and fight once more. One more war, so to speak, on behalf of the people that he chose all the way back with Abraham. 
okay, the Jewish people. He's going to go forward and fight in the day of battle. Now, before a king goes to war, what do you do? He brings his ambassadors home, right? Before you go to war as a nation, if we were going to go attack Europe or attack Canada or something, the first thing we would do is bring our people home, right? That's exactly what Jesus is doing in the rapture. Before a king goes off to war, he brings his people home. So you want to make sure you're an ambassador of the king. Okay, Nehemiah 4, this was the trigger, remember, that triggered the whole thing. I think there's two more slides and we're finished. There's two more, uh, what triggered the start of that 70 weeks of years was the commandment to go forward and rebuild. And as I was studying this, the Lord said, Matt, I need you to tell New City it's time to go build. Because what triggered the start for Jesus to show up? It was building. It was starting to rebuild his people going to work on his behalf. And before he shows up the second time to get the fullness of the Gentiles to be come in, his people have to go build. And they've got to get the church full. There's some people, you have friends, you have family members, you have loved ones that have not accepted Jesus yet that he knows they will. And all he's waiting is for that number to be complete so he can bring us home. So we have to go build for him to build that new city. So Nehemiah 4, hear, O our God, for we are despised and turn their reproach upon their own head and give them for a prey in the land of captivity and cover not their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out from before thee, for they have provoked thee to anger before the builders. And look what Nehemiah says. So built we the wall and all the wall was joined together unto the half thereof for the people had a mind to work. So amongst all, when you read the book of Nehemiah, all these people come and they're despising what they're doing. They're ridiculing, they're blaspheming, they're saying, why are you even bothering doing this for God? It's pointless. You've been destroyed. You've been taken over. You've been taken captivity. This is so fruitless. But look what he says. We had a mind to work. And that is exactly why God started this church when he did, is a mind to work, to build his kingdom. Okay, it's that trigger point from starting to build that brings Jesus home and brings us home. So Nehemiah 4.18, for the builders, everyone had his sword girded by his side and so builded, and he that sounded the trumpet was by me. Who's the one that sounds the trumpet when they bring us home? Jesus, right? The voice of the archangel with the sound of a trumpet, 1 Thessalonians 4. You want to be close to the one that's about to sound the trumpet. And to get close to him, you've got to be in his word and purge everything out of your life that's hindering your relationship with him. And the builders, what do they have by their side? The sword. In Ephesians 6, what's our only offensive weapon? The word of God. It's our sword, right? The sword of the spirit. So get that by your side and get ready to get to work, building on behalf of the king. In what place, therefore, ye hear the sound of the trumpet, restore ye thither unto us. Our God shall fight for us. Okay, the Lord is going to fight for what we're doing in this church. He is not going to let it grow idle. He's not going to stand back and say, man, I hope you guys have good luck with what I called you to do. He is going to go out and fight and lead the charge, just like in Joshua 
when he cleared the land starting at Jericho and he was leading his people through those wars. He's going to do the same thing. So if you do not know Jesus and you want to be a builder and you want to make sure you have your throne room passport, it's simple. In Romans 10.9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's that simple. And if you're watching this online and you don't know the Lord and you want to come home with us, it's happening soon before the 70th week of Daniel begins. Get on your knees and lay it all down, just like we sang, like Mason sang up here a little bit ago. Lay it all down before him and let him take the burden that it was fit for him to take, which was your sin problem. You're not meant to carry it. That's why he tells us in Matthew For my burden is light. My yoke is easy. My burden is light because he is equipped and tailored to carry what you were never meant to carry. You weren't meant to carry around this sin. Or if you are saved and you haven't given something over to him yet, you weren't meant to carry that. You're meant to lay it down at the foot of the throne and let the one that paid for it all carry it. So he wants to welcome you to your forever place. And you can take your place in the bride of Christ right now before, as the workers are on that wall, before the one with the trumpet sounds and brings us home. So come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That is it. It's the substitution for everything you did in your life. It's the substitution where he makes it as white as wool. That's it. It's wiped away. Clean slate. It's finished. So with that, reach out to us if you need prayer, if you have salvation questions. Uh, We'll start next week going through the seals that Jesus is unlocking here in Revelation chapter 6 as the start of that 70th week. And let's just close in prayer real quick. Lord, we just thank you so much for calling New City Church when you did to begin building so that you can return and bring an unashamed bride home to forever be with you. And Lord, I just pray a special blessing upon all of those that hear this study, all of those that are with us here in the church, all of those watching online. God, I just pray that you'd touch their heart and that, Lord, you would breathe new life into them and let them feel your presence in a special way this week. Lord, thank you again for all of these families continue to knit together this church on how you would best see fit for us to build together your kingdom, not to build something on this earth, but to build for your kingdom. Lord, that is our heart's desire. We love you so much. Be with us as we go out of this place, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.